Heist at the Bank of the Black Ox. Written by Nels Chaminor. Chapter 4. Petunia Gardener Harding watched as her husband's Cadillac kicked up dust as it trundled down their winding gravel driveway. Soon the car disappeared around a bend, the dust settled, and her husband was gone. She stood at the tall rectangular window by the door, her arms crossed and her fingers drumming in staccato bursts on her large biceps. The gentle tinkle of a piano sounded behind her in the living room. Upstairs, Lucy practiced her flute, sending long, plaintive whispers through the house. Petunia thought of her other daughters, all engaged in their homework or painting or simply nose-deep in a good book. If idle hands were the devil's plaything, then at least her daughters were safe. The same could not be said of her husband. True, he had the bank of the black ox, his fortune, his house, his household, but none of these things had been the product of his own two hands. Rather, they had either been given to him or commissioned by him and constructed by someone else. The soothing sound of her daughter's music failed to suppress the stream that filled Petunia's head as she watched her husband leave their home. His plan was ludicrous. He had only explained bits and pieces to her as she packed his three suitcases with clothes and instruments picked seemingly at random from the shelves of his office. Yet still, she knew that it was a fool's errand. A sheet of inverted Jenny stamps buried in a cave in central Washington valued in the ballpark of $20,000? Petunia knew by the feverish way that her husband had paced their bedroom as he spoke that the money was little more than a bonus for him that he likely would have gone without it, though he never would have admitted that fact to himself or anyone else. For men like him, men like her father, $20,000 was a cherry atop the banana split that they demanded from the ice cream counters of the world. Demands made in the bossy tones of spoiled children after Sunday school. It was the adventure that attracted Warren. He hated the sedentary life, or... To be more precise, he hated that he had a sedentary life. He complained to Petunia endlessly of the boredom and the tedium of his upper-class existence, with its lengthy dinners and humid hush discussions over brandies with the other men from the Better Business Bureau. But Petunia had never once seen him pick up a rake or a hiking boot or a rifle or anything else that would require action. He always said he'd been waiting his whole life to do something grand. And with this wild, foolhardy adventure, it seemed as though he had found it. Petunia had not told him that she found the whole thing ridiculous. She did not share her reservations about the mysterious Mr. Murphy and the tremendous leap of faith that her husband was taking on his word alone. She knew him too well to express her doubts to him directly. Her doubts would have fallen on deaf ears and trickled inwards to an obstinate brain which would store them away as evidence that she did not love him and did not want him to be happy. Besides, her jaw still ached from their last row. Did she love him? <laughs> she wondered as she stood at the window 
watching the place where her husband's car had been. She remembered something her father had told her about love. That love amounts to taking one on the chin and learning how to hold your head up higher. Petunia had made the best of every blow that had landed on her chin since the day she'd met her husband. And with each setback, her husband's temper, which was immediate and volatile, the loss of their firstborn, named after his father, their subsequent transition to this wretched godforsaken place, the death of her father, her boredom, her loneliness, her fear, she had held her head higher. Now, on the eve of this new grand foolishness of her husband's, which was not really new at all, but just another act in service of his lifelong delusion of grandeur, she wondered how she should respond. Then, as if an answer to her own question, she raised her chin, lowered her arms, turned away from the door, turned away from the thought of her husband, to a house full of music. Chapter 5 Jesse Pinkerton leaned his broad back against the side of the train station and released a mouthful of smoke. He was a Marlboro red man, exclusive to the brand he liked to call cowboy killers, a phrase which never failed to inspire weary, so that makes you a cowboy? From the pretty faces, bathed in the warm white glow of his monogram Zippo, to which Pinkerton would grin like the devil he wished he could be and lowered the brim of his Stetson with the pointer and middle fingers of his left hand. He made that motion, standing against the train station, but there was no one around to see it. Pinkerton stood in the warm evening sunlight in a gray shark-skin suit, white cotton shirt and bolo tie, pointy black cowboys on his feet. Close-cropped black hair peeked out from under his precious Stetson, the short follicles carrying little beads of sweat that occasionally dripped onto his collar. The wide-brimmed hat shaded the scar tissue that covered his face from chin to forehead. As he brought the cigarette to his lips, the right side of his jacket raised slightly, revealing the unmistakable curve of a holster on his belt. Murphy was the first to arrive. He took his place beside Pinkerton. They stood on the western side of the building, a short distance from the entrance looking out over the wooded hills at the sunset. The sun was a gold coin, and it shone as if catching the light off some celestial body far brighter. A chipmunk darted out from a nearby tree. It spun in circles, sniffing the air, its tail twisting and twitching. The two men regarded the chipmunk for a moment, and then, as they noticed the center of each other's attention, they looked away. Their eyes wandered the landscape until a roaring snarl announced the arrival of Mr. H.'s Cadillac. They both straightened, suddenly standing for all the world like partners, like two men who knew each other well. Mr. H. rolled up with a jolting start. The axle caught over a particularly large and sharp rock. He swung the door open and tried to pull himself out, but his arm was caught through the seat belt. He swung in a wide arc towards the open door, colliding nose first with a firm crunch. His screams were immediate and violent. Pinkerton ran to the bathroom to get tissues while Murphy attempted to disentangle Mr. H. As Pinkerton caught sight of him himself in the mirror, he sighed, there would always be tomorrow or tomorrow after that, or maybe it just wasn't meant to be. Pinkerton returned to find Mr. H sitting on the hood of his car, clutching Murphy's blazer to his face. 
As Pinkerton handed the soft paper over, Mr. H. revealed his smashed and bleeding nose. He threw the jacket back to Murphy. Murphy took out the carnation and tucked it into his breast pocket. It's the best you can do. <laughs> Pinkerton stared at him and said nothing. Well, Mr. H. demanded, Mur Murphy, what's wrong with him? Uh, don't mind Pinkerton, Mr. H. He's a bit cold at first, but it warmed to you. Murphy said, that is, if you're still in. Mr. H. looked between the two men, both outlined in black by the last rays of the setting sun. He scrunched up his face, trying to assume that look of shrewd disappointment that Murphy had seen in his office, but wincing from pain. And then wincing, he noticed that he was feeling that pain that his father must have felt before him and his father before him. This was the pain of adventure, and there was plenty more to come. His, his face righted itself. He could not show these men's weakness. He threw down the tissue and took a mighty bubbly sniff. Oh, of course I'm still in, gentlemen. It's only a flesh wound. <laughs> but I, I will need some help with my bangs if you gentlemen could grab my... No, Pinkerton interjected. Excuse me, Mr. Ace asked. No. We're not going to get your bags, Pinkerton said in a voice that was so deep and gruff that it was almost a croak. The voice seemed at first ridiculous coming from a spry young man, but it soon took on a menacing intelligence as he lectured Mr. H. We are not your fucking porters. We are your partners. Uh, partners implies we all have an equal share in, of the <coughs> investment and the risk. Mr. H. said, smiling. And we do, Pinkerton answered. Uh, I beg your pardon, Mr. H. said, raising his hands and employing the sycophantic apologism of the professional bureaucrat. I have a significant cash investment at stake here. Your friend Mr. Murphy over there told me $4,000, and I have brought 4000 which seems an excessive amount for an excavation tools, but we'll get to that in a moment. All this to say that I have upheld my end of the bargain by bringing the money, and the least you could do is extend some professional courtesy my way. Mr. H. walked back to the trunk and popped it open. He withdrew his three suitcases and laid them on the rocky ground. Now, I'm not asking you to carry all my bags, just one each. That's fair, doesn't it? Considering our equal investment and my injury... Partner, he lifted one of the cases and held it out for Pinkerton. Pinkerton didn't even look down. You know what? I changed my mind. We don't have an equal investment. Murphy and I know where we're going. We have a plan. And most importantly, we don't have three fuck in suitcases. Pickerton took a step closer and lifted the brim of his Stetson so that Mr. H could get a good look at his angular, scar-ridden face. You think you're the top dog around here? You call the shots. Let's get it straight. We don't owe you shit. We don't even need you. The only reason you're here is because we had to stop in this bullshit little town for a transfer. And we heard there was a man named Harding 
who had both cash on hand and balls between his legs. But all I see is a man too afraid of his own last name to use it, a clumsy jester who thinks the king's money makes him royal. Letting a spittle fly, Pinkerton said, I don't do business with clowns like you. Pinkerton took one last deep look into Mr. H's eyes and started walking towards the door to the station. Mr. H was paralyzed, still holding out one of his suitcases to the partner that was no longer there. <laughs> He's only running his mouth, Murphy said, walking up to Mr. H and grabbing the remaining suitcases, one in each hand. Only means half of what he says. You'll get used to it. <laughs> Believe me, come tomorrow. He will have forgotten all about it. Probably onto something else, I'm afraid. Murphy sighed and lowered his head, watching Mr. H for signs of life. I, I can't promise it won't happen again, but I can promise you won't have to put up for it for much longer. Lifting one of the cases high in the air, he said, shouldn't take much longer than a day or two to get up there and get those stamps and sell them, but hey, I was a Boy Scout. I get it. Still nothing for Mr. H. <sighs> Look, I admit that Pinkerton's stubborn, maybe to a fault, but having a tin man in your corner can save your skin if you get into a jam. Tin man? Mr. H asked. Well, ex-tin man, I guess. What's a tin man? A cop. Detroit. I think it fucked him up pretty bad, but not so bad that I don't trust him. Mr. H picked up the tissue off the ground and held it back to his floored face. He began lumbering towards the entrance to the station and then turned his head over his shoulder. The absence of a neck made this action particularly difficult for him. From behind, Murphy could only make out the twin crescents of a cheek and a forehead disappearing into a receding hairline. And you do? Mr. H asked. What, trust him? Mr. H. didn't speak, just lifted his bulbous head. <laughs> With my life. Chapter 6 Lucy Cordelia Harding pushed the power button on her receiver, reducing Jim Morrison's plaintive, drunken ramblings to a tinny whisper. Then she raised the needle, silencing him completely. Removing her headphones, she cocked her head, listening to the sounds of the house she called home. She heard her youngest sister, Anna, running through vocal scales, the do, re, mi, fa, sol, la, ti, do, deadened by the thick wooden ceiling and floorboards above Lucy's head. Outside, a barn owl hooted. She heard soft footsteps followed by a low purr outside her door. As Bartholomew's black head peeked around the frame, Lucy caught his eyes with hers. She lifted her right pointer finger to her pursed lips. The cat blinked and stood silently in the doorway. Lucy heard her mother's rumbling snores emanating from the parlor on the ground floor. Petunia Harding was a deep sleeper, preferring the sofa to her bed, and a simple flannel robe to the myriad nighties and floral print pajamas that she received from her husband every anniversary and birthday. After her nightly bath, Petunia would recline on the plushy cornflower blue sofa, with a book on her lap and a dram of brandy on the end table. She would finish the brandy in a half-dozen dainty sips, at which point her eyelids would droop, her breathing would slow, and her consciousness would leave her until sunrise. Lucy knew that it would take a lawnmower held to her ear to wake her mother. Yet still, she tiptoed to her closet, bypassing the impractically tight-waisted jeans she wore to school, for a pair of simple black slacks. 
They bunched out at the knees and sagged in the seat. They were unflattering, but she didn't care. She wore the pants for comfort, not for style. Besides, she wouldn't be wearing them for long. Lucy pulled a sweatshirt over her head and grabbed a pair of beaten Onitsuka tigers from the shoe rack by the door. As she passed Bart, she reached down and scratched under his ear. He leaned into her hand, purring lovingly. She gave him a gentle shove out of the frame, using her other hand to pull the door closed behind her. Betty was lacing up her tennis shoes when Lucy entered the room. Lucy shook her head, lifting her unlaced shoes. Betty looked up quizzically. Too much noise, Lucy whispered, miming a staggering stomp with the empty tigers. Really? No way it matters. Mom's out like a light. Still, Lucy said, can never be too careful. Betty shrugged and unlaced her shoes. The two of them went next door to get August, who sat on her bed, tying her long curly hair up into a ponytail. Although all of them were blonde, the six Harding girls wore their hair differently. Lucy's was arrow straight, falling like a waterfall down her back. Betty kept her hair short, styled into a bob that made her look significantly younger than her 16 years. Their younger sisters tended to keep their hair in whatever styles were currently popular with their peers. But of all the Harding girls, it was universally understood that August had the best hair. No one knew where the curls had come from. Both Petunia and her husband had straight hair. And though none of their daughters inherited their glandular obesity, all of them except August had received their hair texture. Needless to say, August inspired jealousy among the lot of them. Even Lucy, who, at 19, hated that she felt jealous of her 15-year-old sister. August followed her older sisters down the hallway without a word. At the door to Sarah's room, they paused, listening to the sounds coming through the closed door. Sarah was intensely private, and her room was off-limits to everyone except Loretta, the housekeeper, and Sarah herself. Not even her mother dared enter the room. She knew better than to provoke her daughter's tempestuous and vindictive rage. Her father simply didn't care enough to try. Sarah opened the door a crack and slipped through it. The four oldest Harding girls waited at the landing for the fifth, Belle, who lived on the third floor, in the room next to Anna. At twelve, Belle was just old enough to accompany the rest of them on their moonlit excursions. Though her sisters stood on guard, knowing that Belle's excitable, pubescent personality was liable to alert either Anna or Petunia to their exit from the house. Belle bounded down the stairs two at a time, landing with a dull thud on the carpeted floor. Her sisters shook their heads in disapproval. Belle giggled, assuming the role of the sneaking cat burglar as she crept across the landing to where they stood. Idiot, Sarah hissed. Am not, Belle rejoined, much louder than was appropriate. At the sound of Belle's voice, Bart let out a sharp meow and darted upstairs. Quiet, Lucy whispered, silencing the both of them. She held her arms out and listened. Her mother's snoring was clearer now, as was her sister's singing from the floor above. The coast was clear. They snuck in single file down the staircase and out through the back door into the garden. The moonlight cast everything in sterling silver. The night air smelled of cedar and damp earth. The girls stood in a tight semicircle as they knelt down to lace up their shoes. Then they crossed from the back door to the edge of the lawn, where they found Anna Harding sitting cross-legged on a stump, stroking Bart, who reclined on her lap, belly up, his white paws batting at nothing. 
How? August began, to which Anna pointed to the lattice that clung to the side of the house, extending up from the garden to her open window. Forget it, Lucy said. You're not coming. But loose, Anna whined. Loose nothing. You're not coming, Lucy repeated flatly. Now get back inside and take Bart with you. You know he's not supposed to be out at night either. But it's my birthday next week, so it's almost like I'm 11. Funny, Belle snickered. It's almost like you can go. Betty walked up to her youngest sister and placed a hand on her shoulder. I'm sorry, Scout. I know how much you want to come along. But it's just not safe. It's a long walk and we can't use flashlights. What if you got scared? I won't, Anna protested. I mean, I don't get scared anymore. Since when? Sarah sneered. And don't call me Scout, Anna said to Betty. I hate that name. Betty stood and smiled down at her sister. Oh, come on, you love that name. No, Anna said coldly. You love that name because you love making me feel like a baby. Betty's smile faded. Now you're just trying to hurt my feelings. Lucy took a few steps toward Anna and crouched down, the heels of her tigers resting against her haunches and her athletic legs bent into horizontal chevrons. Lucy was an accomplished gymnast, her trophies proudly displayed alongside the medals and plaques her sisters received for their various pursuits in a glass case above Petunia's large, slumbering head. Remember where your name comes from, Scout? Lucy asked, searching her sister's disappointed face for a flicker of recognition. Remember when I used to read to you every night and To Kill a Mockingbird was your favorite book of all time? Anna nodded slightly. Her middle-parted, shoulder-length hair shielded her face. I must have read that to you a hundred times, and you always had me reread the part about the mockingbird. When Atticus tells them how you're never supposed to shoot one because all the mockingbird ever did was to bring joy to people, that it was never guilty of anything. Lucy put a hand up to Anna's cheek. Well, that's like you, Scout. We know you won't get scared, don't we, girls? They all nodded in agreement, except Sarah, who muttered, I don't. Without losing her balance or removing her hand from Anna's cheek, Lucy kicked one of her legs backward, making direct contact with Sarah's skin. Fuck, Sarah whimpered, falling to the ground in a jackknife position, hugging her shin to her chest. It's not that we don't want you to come, or that we don't think you're ready. We just don't want to shoot the mockingbird until we absolutely have to. We want to let you stay innocent for as long as we can. Anna looked up and saw the genuine love in her oldest sister's eyes. She saw the maternal instinct that Lucy had possessed since her first day out of the womb. Even as a baby, Lucy only ever cried when she saw her mother cry. Anna smiled. Just promise me you'll shoot me soon, okay? We promise, don't we, girls? The middle four Harding sisters piped up in unison, even Sarah, who lumbered up from the ground, grumbling, promise. Okay, be safe, Anna told them. You too, Lucy said. And as Betty, August, Sarah, and Belle disappeared into the woods, she turned her head back to her youngest sister. Oh, and Anna, take the stairs back up, just to make sure Bart gets back in safely. Lucy vaulted over the stump upon which Anna had been sitting. The five sisters moved in a line through the forest, like a platoon, jumping over creeks and ducking beneath low-hanging limbs. They passed between ancient Douglas firs, whose gnarled trunks bore dark and malevolent faces in the broken moonlight. Ferns swished at their feet, 
showering their pant legs and shoes with rust-colored spores and little droplets of water. They moved deeper and deeper into the forest, staying off the roads and trails, navigating by muscle memory until they saw a flicker of orange light glowing through the trees. Their pace quickened, and then they were running, tearing through the underbrush and cackling. As their faces emerged from the dark into the light, their laughter faded, consumed by the roar of a great fire. Heist at the Bank of the Black Ox. Written by Nels Chamnor. Produced by Jesse Rosenthal. Chapter 4. Read by Crystal Ezel. 5. By John Ellis. And 6. By Sophie Eldridge. Thank you.